we're going to have the speaker, Chris Hodgson. He's a digital journalism instructor in the Digital Communications and Media Department at Lethbridge College. He is currently pursuing his master's in virtual reality, 360 degree storytelling, through the University of Alberta Master's of Arts in Communication and Technology program. So that's next week's program. To read more about Chris, it's on your table. Okay, we ready to go, Annalise? Okay, Shaw, you ready? Okay. Okay, it's my pleasure today to introduce to you our second speaker, Dr. Glenda Bonifacio, who joined the University of Lethbridge Department of Women and Gender Studies in 2005. She holds a BA in Social Sciences, major in Political Science, magna cum laude, University of the Philippines, a Master's in Asian Studies, University of Philippines, and PhD from the School of History and Politics, University of Wollongong, Australia. I still hear talking. Do you want to stand in the corner? <laughs> in, in 2015, Dr. Bonifacio was selected as one of the 100 most influential Filipino women in the world in the innovator and thought leader category. The award by the Filipino Women's Network, FWN, recognizes women who have broken new ground in the global workplace and has improved the lives of others. Also, you'll notice in today's Lethbridge Herald, on page A2, a picture of Dr. Bonifacio. And yesterday, she um, launched her new book, Canadian Perspectives on Immigration in Small Cities, talking about immigration in Lethbridge. Okay, let's all welcome Dr. Glenda Bonifacio. Thank you, Bev, for that uh, wonderful introduction. And uh, for everyone here, thank you so much for supporting SACPA. And I guess they told me I have to do 15 minutes for closing the gender gap. Dr. Hodes uh, gave you the Canadian perspective, more or less a North American perspective. And in 15 minutes, I'll try to share with you uh, my perspective and how to close the gender gap. But uh, it's kind of a very daunting question since uh, it is, that's been already. So I, how do you? Okay, while Annelies is fixing my, my presentation with is regards to the uh, more or less a global perspective of gender gap and uh, taking from the information from the flyer which SACPA gave you is regards to the world the economic forum ranking of countries and the prediction or the assumption that it would take a century to actually close the gender gap. But that particular century doesn't speak of the global century, but rather a particular country, or more or less developed countries. So I'll just focus here. The World Economic Forum Global Gender Gap Index measured in four categories. You have health, education, economic participation, and political economic uh, yeah, participation, economic empowerment, and political participation. So 
Based on the index, there are 145 countries. So of the world ranking, you'll see 2016, you have there Philippines, my, where my home country is. Uh, it ranked number seven last year and consistently in the top 10 since 2006 when it started. So Philippines is a developing country. Canada is ranked 35, a developed country. USA is ranked 45. Japan, the highly developed country in Asia, ranks 111. So the earlier question I came about was that how come there's this gap that United States and Canada, if you look at this situation, the world ranking or the global gender gap index, you'll notice that developing countries, okay, fare better in terms of closing the gender gap a bit. Okay, so this is a record of countries looking at about 30 or 40 percent of the gap has kind of closed. But for Canada, it's uh, a bit lower than the Philippines. So, however, the absolute, the, the, the numerical value doesn't speak of the reality. And probably I'll share to you earlier this uh, slide about Philippines being consistently in the top tenth of the world ranking. You look at this, I cannot really see because I'm smaller, it has to be here. <laughs> so if you look at that, the top five countries remain to be Nordic countries. So Finland, uh, Iceland, Sweden, these are the countries that actually have reached about 30% of their policy-making bodies, women. Okay, so there are more gender-fair policy, more women in politics, and there are more what they call affirmative uh, actions towards making gender parity. Okay, and uh, you have there Rwanda, number five. So you ask yourself, a war-torn country besting Canada in the ranking. Rank, Canada ranked 35, Rwanda number five. What is the reason? Of course, women in Canada would live better, better quality of life than the women in Rwanda. However, the measurements of political participation, more women are engaged in politics in Rwanda. Why? Or other countries higher than the ranking in Canada. Why? Because if they don't do it, nobody will. Whereas in Canada, or in the United States, or Japan, the options are there for women not to actually engage. Because the government, the so-called social safety net, is already available for them. Whereas for women in the Philippines, women in, uh, what else, Slovenia, or Nicaragua, they have to fight for it. They have to fight for fair economic wages, they have to be engaged in politics to actually get the policy that they want because nobody will do it. Whereas in Canada and highly developed economies, there are particular understanding of the level of uh, liberties, the level of social safety net achieved already, that somehow many women believe that the women in parliament, the women in the ministry, 
the women there, what we call bureaucratic feminism, would actually be responsible to uplift or elevate the lives of other women. So that's the main difference. Although Philippines rank number seven consistently on the top, and Philippines is one of the more gender equal countries in Asia, it doesn't mean that Filipino women are better placed than Can Canadian women. First, there's no divorce in the Philippines. It's the only country in, a, in the world outside of the Vatican that doesn't grant divorce. So how could you say that you actually, anyway, it's a complicated system that I actually will tell you later after my 15 minutes slant. <laughs> the next one is with regards to, uh, I think uh, Caroline, uh, Dr. Holtz mentioned about this uh, gender wage, you know, parity index. So if you look at this, uh, this year it's about 83%, 83 or 87% something, to a dollar. If you compare that globally, this is more than half of the women in the world globally in terms of how they fare economically. You follow? So if, for example, I receive $1,000, that in Canada, that would be actually something like $500 or $300 globally. So in terms of the global picture, the women's economic uh, productivity in terms of value is higher compared to those women who actually belong to these top-ranking countries. Follow? So out of the 145 countries, there are only four countries where more women and than men are at work. Malawi, Mozambique, Rwanda, and Burundi. They're all in Africa. There are many reasons to actually, do, but simply, they have to do it. Otherwise, it's a measure of survival for many of these women. So that's in terms of economics. If you look into, in terms of political participation globally, and even in, the, in parliament, the national parliaments with a higher proportion of women members than the European parliament. So there are more women in national parliaments than in the European parliament. So these countries are, okay, again, Rwanda, Bolivia, Andorra, Cuba, Sweden, Seychelles, Senegal, and that. Okay, so Canada sits at what percent? About 23%, 27%. So the target of United Nations for, develop, for Millennium Development Goals is to actually reach 30% women in parliament. And we haven't reached that, neither the US. Philippines have surpassed that. In fact, I think only in Colombia, Philippines, and Fiji, where more women occupy leadership positions. However, that is only one picture of the world, okay? Economics, politics, um, social aspect, but this is more important. Globally, gender-based violence kills harms more women than malaria, cancer, traffic accidents combined. And that is actually a global pandemic. And that's one reason why, for example, 
removing the barriers for gender equality impinges on or reflects on the gender-based violence. So this is a global pandemic. The forms of violence inflicted on women in times of war and in peace, physically, sexually, psychologically, at home, in the streets, in schools, in everywhere. So if there's a sort of pandemic of gender-based violence, the other areas of concerns will not be, oh, they want me to, okay. So you all know about that fact. So I, I, in five minutes, I give you my formula for actually closing the gender gap. And I hope you remember this. If the only ones actually remember from my talk because I'm fast, is this uh, acronym, HAS-DE-HA. Can you repeat? HAS-DE-HA. HAS-DE-HA means H-U, human justice, S-T, Structural justice, DE de, is decolonize. Ha, be happy for others. Okay, so in terms of human justice, the basic inalienable right of people, of human beings to be free, to pursue their happiness, to be educated, has not actually transformed to women after the Enlightenment. It has not fully. Act uh, made them completely equal since the Enlightenment. So human justice is there, human rights, and I think you understand that. Structural justice in terms of family, schools, institutions, the, the policies that Dr. Holtz mentioned, if, if the structure creates the realities in which we live, so if the structure believes that you are less than the other, it actually produces a reality generationally. And you follow? So we have to work on structural justice. And Caroline mentioned a number of those. They is decolonized. It's a way of shifting our thinking. It's a shift of paradigm. It is not a matter of I am better than you, therefore I should do this, you should not do that. It's not the case. Decolonize is a way of knowing a way of thinking others, you know? It's a d different paradigm shift, which probably I'll talk about in the question period. The last, it's very easy, but kind of hard. Happiness for others. Why can't we not be happy for our women, for our female children, for trans, for gays, to actually be who they want if they would actually harm anybody, okay? There is no, if, if somebody wants to do art, and wants to become a doctor, it's better if a doctor knows art. If a, if a doctor is an artist, we're better off. It's not actually a measure of one over the other, but we have to be happy for others. Our heart is bigger than we could actually encapture many of those, what you call empathy, love, do it. However, it's kind of hard sometimes. The simple formula is simply overall, Human justice, structural justice, decolonization of the minds is uh, in reality happiness for others. You know, why can't we be happy for others? Thank you. <laughs> okay, I don't know if it makes wow. sense. 15 minutes, I came from a meeting. <laughs> wow, that, that, was, that was quick. Okay, we got it. Can we say it again? Hasteka. All right, questions.
And I see Terry Shillington coming to the mic. Yes, um, <laughs> thank you for your uh, blitzkrieg here. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Terry Shillington. Uh, so I want to I want to um, fine tune the question I, I didn't get to complete earlier. Uh, I noticed in your first chart you put up that uh, you said that uh, underdeveloped countries have more w women's participation because of the necessities of life. However, I noticed the top four in that top ten were Nordic, and New Zealand was eight or nine, which uh, which would seem to undermine that theory. And I wonder what is going on in Nordic countries that they. Uh, in some of these quality of life ways seem to be way ahead of us? Oh, that's a very good question. I'm saying that all of those in the top 10, uh, women have to, to do it because there's nobody would actually do it. It actually speaks about uh, the developing economies, developing uh, countries like Malawi, Philippines, Burundi, uh, Slovenia, and others. But the Nordic countries, it's something that's actually um, a model, why? Because in terms of political participation, they have reached about 30% or over of women participating in decision making, both in government and in corporations and in boards. There was, uh, there was this quota, um, I think, I'm not so sure about the company, but there's quota in some Nordic countries where the board should be represented by about 30% women. So there's some sort of affirmative action in many ways. And one of the fact, one of the, I think, consequence of electing and putting women in decision making there is that they were able to produce women-friendly, gender-friendly, family-friendly policies that in terms of having a meeting, if you are not uh, sympathetic or maybe inconsiderate about women's double burden. What they do before in terms of standard ways is that you have a meeting at 10 in the, 10 in the evening, 12 in the evening, 12 in the evening, you bring your meeting in the bar. It can't work with women. So with this uh, policy that they made, they do a meeting in terms of this and that period, and then they, they have a, a, a way to actually have a life, you know, also engage with their family. So it doesn't, it's not actually one over the other. No, uh, sorry, you have to go to the mic. Oh, okay. Just a minute. Canada is going through one of the greatest scurvies of all time in the country. And I understand by course, by the press that uh, your home country is the only country in the world is not affected by the opioid killings that already killed a thousand NBC and all over the country. What is it? You talking you about the drug war? Yeah, can you tell us how, how the Philippines have secured it? I, I know, can you tell the public how the Philippines have, have secured the opioid poisoning, killing in their country? I'm not uh, f clear about the question in terms of how the Philippine government responds to the drug war or to yes, the gender? Yes, to the drugs and the killings, the opioid killings, murders. Oh, <laughs> that is a, that's a different topic, but. Uh, I know it is, but it still refers to women 
you know, the whole topic today is supposed to be that, that the uh, world uh, okay. woman, okay? But uh, major I think 90% of those uh, in the drug war are not women. So this is uh, a complicated question since um, if you look into, just to answer the question briefly, you, what you hear on the news is about extrajudicial killing of uh, President Duterte, but uh, you only actually see one of the, one picture about, about the, what's going on in the Philippines because the media is controlled by another party. Therefore, what's actually produced into the international media is only one side of the story. Uh, whereas locally, for the first time in a generation, many Filipinos have actually learned and have actually accepted the real change. Here comes a president who is genuinely for the people and for actually eradicating corruption. And of course, when you do that, there's this so-called paradigm shift. The old, old system doesn't actually work with him now. He can't be corrupted anymore, so no bribery, nothing. So this is what's going on in the Philippines. So you have now a first president, in the first time in the Second World War, that you have a president that actually could stand, could say no to the United States, could say no to this, could say no to corruption, and then what's actually uh, going on is the extrajudicial killing, which I don't, which has been sort of uh, hyped by the media. So I can't answer, but it's not really women. Okay, we're going on to the next questioner. Maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> so it's not Knut. gender. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. And uh, I just want to say happy birthday to Frank. He's uh, no, no youngster anymore, but he always says that uh, the alternative to getting older is not that good. Happy birthday. Uh, my name is Knut Peterson. I'd like to ask you about uh, one of the reasons why women are not able to advance the way they should is probably because of fear from men that they actually become independent and can look after themselves in a, in a way that men, men like to have that power, I think, that the women need men? Do you think that's one of the reasons why it's so slow coming? I agree with you to some extent. If you look at my formula, has deha, you look at the structural justice. The structural justice refers to institutions. It could be schools, what's going on in schools, what's going on in religion, what's going on in, you know, the the framework that actually creates that reality. And the other one is decolonize. So for a long, long time, we are in any culture, it's actually non-indigenous, the understanding, particularly the influx of religious ideas, Christianity uh, and others actually pr put this sort of ideas into different policies that provided lesser value for women and uh, 
I think biblically you have there that understanding, popular understanding that um, women are supposed to be subdued, women are supposed to be controlled, the sexuality control and whatnot. And uh, that's uh, partly one reason why for us to have, uh, to close the gender gap, we have to clean our minds, you know, decolonize. Like uh, what would be good for us to actually curtail someone's growth, someone's idea you know, to become this despite her gender, if we have those uh, biases. So Caroline mentioned about a number of those biases, perceptions, challenges, uh, discrimination, and stereotypes. That because you are this, you're only up to this. If you, if you are that, you're only good at that. Whereas to decolonize is actually shift you know, our minds that uh, what's, you know, would life be better if uh, you have a partner instead of someone who is under you? Would it be better, would it be good in terms of, of talking that uh, you have somebody to actually engage with as opposed to somebody who just say yes, 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 yes to you every time? I don't know, so maybe yes, yes, yes to you after a month and then you look for another. Why not uh, be somebody else at the same time? Mary? Thank you for your information. Mary Shellington here. Um, I'm interested, uh, sort of a follow-up to uh, what Terry had asked about the Scandinavian countries. Like one of the things that Carolyn talked about was the discrimination uh, and the lower wages and success and jobs and so on that happens to people of minority groupings, like our indigenous people, like our immigrant people and so on. So, Like myself. Yes, like yourself. Uh, tribute to you that you've uh, beaten that, uh, that issue for yourself in some ways. I, I'm sure the, uh, there's still things there for you. But what happens in the Scandinavian countries? Do they have uh, people, uh, are they uh, of one kind of race there? Or like, how does that imp impact or not impact on the fact that they uh, are the, at the top of, of the uh, uh, scales that you've shown? So just some feedback about that, please. Yeah, th that's a very good question. I haven't been to the Scandinavian countries. And of course, uh, some of these countries are also has uh, reported anti-immigration sentiments, you know, anti-refugee sentiment. What the World Economic Forum produced is a report that actually those countries based on indices have fared better compared to other countries. That's, but that's a mean that everybody there, you know, are uh, you know, happy and everything, you know, everything is equal. Uh, I think yesterday or, or this week, the government in Iceland has actually provided this policy that they have to, corporations have to produce this sort of like a proof that they're having that, that everyone or in a particular, for a particular job, or, gets an equal you know, pay regardless of their gender. So that is the one of the, the difference between what they were doing and what's actually is being done in other developed countries like Canada or United States or Japan or Australia or New Zealand is the fact that there are more policies that actually facilitated more women, more women's involvement in politics, economy, as well as when women actually go to work, their childcare and other issues that actually goes with uh, maternal responsibilities have been responded to 
as opposed to in Canada, the absence of a national childcare policy. The childcare policy in this country rests on racialized women under the live-in caregiver program, the temporary farm worker program, where um, a number, 90% of them, were, are patronized by Filipino women. So that is the difference. Uh, how they actually do it, I, I don't have the answer, but rather, if you look at it from a macro perspective, that's the difference between them and what we should actually be doing. In other words, uh, we need to provide more action, more teeth in what we actually aspire for, because uh, it would actually translate to better economy, more productivity, lesser, probably lesser impact on other activities, delinquent activities. I don't know if I make sense. You make great thank sense. You. <laughs> uh, Ruth Alzinga, and thank you for your address today. Um, I have a question relative to the, the Philippine example and your statistics, because I'm aware there are Canadian employers who seek out uh, Philippine workers, and then they're here for a while, and then they sometimes uh, like to uh, apply for landed immigrant status. So on your, and also when I was in the United Arab Emirates, there's a lot of marketing and bringing these ladies from the Southeast to work as serving the nationals in, in the United Arab Emirates. But I just wondered, in you, and I, I know I talked to one little gal, and she said she leaves her children uh, with a grandma back home, and money is coming from that place of work, from and she ships it back to her family in the Philippines. Same thing with some of our Canadian employers who hire people and money goes back. So on your statistics, when you talk about all these Philippine women working, are we talking about that com component as well? That's my question. No. The, the measurement of the World Economic Forum only measures those who are in the Philippines. So the women who are out in Canada, they actually are not counted, but uh, that's uh, one of the f one of the class very good examples wherein you don't uh, in the Philippines because there's no divorce, women just do separate. You know, if you have if you have properties to divide, you go for legal separation to divide property. But many are poor. What's to divide? So they just simply separate, and then since they can't get married, and then there's no support system to actually provide child custody, child support, child allowance that we actually have here. Women have to work, and the best way for them to work with higher wages is to actually become an overseas foreign worker. So 25%, about a quarter of the population, lives outside of the country. So I, in my book, uh, not in this book, I have a book that actually argue that a quarter of the population in the Philippines are a floating middle class. And to say, they're outside of the Philippines, but they actually provide the social safety net for their families in the Philippines. So for education, for health, for house, for anything, for insurance, it's from people actually working outside. So in terms of Canadian employers, because uh, the Philippines, compared to Canada, Canada has an aging population with due respect. Okay, it's a graying population. We need more workers here that is actually provided for by countries with high population growth rate and a very young population. In the Philippines, more than half of the population are young. It cannot be absorbed by a small country. 
However, because of colonialism, globalization, we have been an extended empire, what you call labor empire. We speak English. Uh, it's an easily transferable skill. You can be uh, employed anywhere. And the skills are, they, we produce graduates not to be for the national development, but we produce graduates for the development of the world, for the global world. They love Philippine nurses because they're more caring. It's part of the culture. According to one, you know, I, I talked to somebody, they said, oh, we prefer Philippine nurses. Why? Because when the Philippine nurse come here, they thought, oh, how are you? How's your life today? You know, the weather is good. But uh, I'm sorry, they say, for, for a German nurse, they say, here's your medicine, take it. We so where would you like? We have time for one last question. <laughs> so sorry about Germany. <laughs> Thank you very much uh, for your, uh, your presentation today. And I would just like to say I really like this Hustada. Hustiha. Hustiha. But my question is, how, how can we change the attitudes of people around the world and give value to baby girls and women? I mean, I think that's, for me, that's where it starts, is these attitudes. Yes. And uh, I know there's no simple answer, but what, what would you say of how we began to to change attitudes towards our girls? That's a good question because globally, out of the 70% people who are poor, over 50% are women and girls. Over a majority of those who actually suffer from war, either in peace or in, at home, are women and girls. Uh, in terms of education and on access, it's women and girls. So I, I think uh, it's de decolonization means we have to understand what you're talking about so I guess from which point of view you you're going to ask the question. If you're coming from Canada, from a Western privileged perspective, what can we do? Because if in terms of poverty, oh, we can't actually send our kids to school because they have to work. So the issue is poverty. But in my, I argue, it's not an issue of poverty. It's an issue of the distribution or the allocation of resources. Why do we have so much food in our table today? Whereas in other world, they have nothing to eat. So it's, it's, the, it's the distribution of resources. We actually amass so much wealth, so much consumption in, in the Western world that we think that by doing this, we're actually not thinking the interconnectedness of our lives here as opposed to their lives. Like if we eat tomato here, it's a simply because we are in Canada. The tomato is part of Mexico. The tomato, if you receive a flower, that flower comes from Nicaragua, comes from Kenya. And that flower that you receive here in, or in Netherlands receives more water than the average Kenyan. And you follow? So if we are from the point of view of Canada, what can we do to actually improve the lives and the situation of girls and women outside of Canada? Because Canada is not the world. However, people in Canada, my students, you, we actually shape how the world will be like. So if you like the world to be different from our world today, we have to do something. So what do we have here? We have the heart, we have the resources, we have the ability to connect, we have the internet. So 
We can only do a little thing, you know, in our lives. If you live 80 or 90 years old, good. But how good would that life be if we haven't actually changed the lives of others? So if you are a teacher, you are a simple worker here, it means you can do something. You can make a difference. How? Connect. How do we connect? Lethbridge is a small city. We have here Syrians, Bhutanese, Filipinos, many others. You don't have to go, you know, somewhere to actually connect. The world is in Lethbridge. So when we connect to the Nepalese, we connect to the Filipinos, we actually connect to that country. Can you follow? So when we connect with them, we see, oh, this going on in the Philippines, something going on in Vietnam, something going on in Cambodia. What can I do there? See? So uh, there's a school here. We can actually work something out. We could produce a program. While in feminism here, we have liberal feminism in terms of providing for equal opportunities for girls to be in school, to be at work, it's still a liberal agenda in other countries, still the need for them to have access to the resources to provide for their education that actually would give them that spring off. Because 80% education is a social equalizer. If we have that here in Canada, we actually translate that to the rest of the world. How? We do it slowly because we only need you. You only need one person to actually start the ball rolling. You're, you know, heart to heart, whatever I say. I'm up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Fabulous talk. Thank you.